Two weeks ago, I began a series entitled Made New. And in that series, I began to set forth what it means for us to have new life in Jesus Christ as Christians. Based off of the passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. And we began a path of discovery for what it means for us to be made new in Jesus Christ and to live as the new creation which he has created us. And so last week we looked at what it means to live, first of all, in the realm of God's love. What does it mean to live in God's love? And, and we saw that this first realm, this realm of the heart, if you will, living in God's love establishes for us the first two aspects of our Christian identity as worshiper, engaging the heart to focus on relationship with God, to grow an all-consuming love for Jesus Christ, and as servant, so engaging the hands to focus on genuine expression of life that we might meet needs of others in Jesus' name. And this is what it means to live in love, this realm of the heart. As we were made new, we saw that Jesus gives us a new heart and puts his spirit in that new heart so that he can be with us at all times and we can relate to him. His love is alive in us, his life. And what it means first and foremost to live in his love is that we show the love to the world that we have received from God in Jesus Christ. Well, as we focus on that relationship with God as worshipers to grow that all-consuming love and focus on uh, engaging our hands to live as servants to meet needs in Jesus' name, that's what it means in the first two aspects of Christians to live in God's love. But today, we're going to look at the final part of what it means to be made new that has come to us. And we're going to talk about a long parallel to living in love. What does it mean to walk in peace? What does it mean for us to walk in peace? And we're going to look at the final two aspects of every Christ follower's identity of disciple and missioner. Now, last week, I told you that that, that the identity of the Christian as worshiper and servant is how we live in love, that realm of the heart. Today, the parallel realm that we're going to look at is the realm of the mind in walking in peace and how it is that Jesus Christ, through the gospel, brings transformation in our life. And I'll just give a little spoiler to the sermon. I'm not going to finish. So you'll know what I'm going for next week when I finish today. But here's what I want you to walk away with the first half of anyway today. Is that Christ followers are made new by Jesus to walk in God's peace. Christ followers are made new by Jesus to walk in God's peace. And I want to go to this passage in Matthew. And I'm going to read verses 19 and 20 for us uh, as we begin. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. 
This passage is known as the Great Commission. These are Jesus' final words to his disciples before he ascends back into heaven where he sits today at the right hand of the Father ruling all things. This passage is so important that it is recorded by every human author of the Gospels in the New Testament. Matthew 28 18 to 20 records it for us. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Mark in his explosive way says, go into all creation and preach the gospel. Just preach it to anything and anybody that will listen and tell them Jesus is coming to restore everything. And then Luke gives it to us twice in his gospel account in chapter 24, but also in his historical account of the formation of the church in the book of Acts. He says this, and they basically agree in the fundamentals of what he tells us, but he says this in Acts 1.8, You shall receive power from up on high when the Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses witnesses. And then the gospel of John, John records in chapter 20, verse 21, he says this, and it captures the essence of this realm in which we live with God through the gospel. He says, peace be with you. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. And we understand that these words that come from the authority of the king of kings, the king of the ages, is transferring that authority to us to go and live because we know him. That's powerful, isn't it? You see, when we live in love, I said last week, that we live in the realm of the heart, transferring the glory, the value of God's love that we've received to other people to tell them, look, God loves you. God loves you. And when we walk in peace, we live in the realm of the mind as we're going to unpack today. But we're transferring the authority that Jesus brings to us as the king of the ages, the king of all creation, the king of kings. And the authority that he bestows upon our life to live in God's peace, we're transferring that to the world to tell them there is peace with God. There is a great redemption from the condemnation, the guilt, and the shame that sin places upon us. And it's found only and always in Jesus Christ. And so this great commission distinguishes the second realm in which Christ's followers relate to God. It's the realm of the renewed mind that we might walk in God's peace with Jesus Christ and that we might proclaim it to all creation. Now, there's two vital truths that you need to understand from this great commission passage in Matthew that are inherent for our identity as Christ followers. And it's simply this. First of all, one must be a disciple to make disciples. You're familiar with this, but in a more negative connotation, you very likely said to someone at earlier stage in life, it takes one to know one, right? I mean, I mean you know, you, you were trying to say something about them that they had already said was true of you. And the fact of the matter is, Jesus says this, look, if you're not one, you can't make one. You've got to be a disciple. That's who he was speaking to. Those who had already professed faith in him to believe and receive the new life that he gives. One must be a disciple in order to make disciples. And the second is true as well, that every true disciple of Jesus actively engages in making disciples through the gospel. 
See, when a Christ follower lives as disciple and missioner, they walk in God's peace and they labor to proclaim God's peace to all people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I used one other illustration, very likely the greatest illustration I've ever used in preaching. The tennis ball and the paracord. I know, some of you are radically altered. You were changed last week when you saw that great illustration. Wonderful. Thank you for confirming that. Um, and the depth of which it affected you. I'm not going to use that illustration again, but I talked about the relationship of centripetal and centrifugal force. And I spun a tennis ball around on a piece of cord. And I talked about centripetal as the actual force that exerts on the tennis ball that draws it to the center and holds it in a perfect circle. But centrifugal force is the apparent force acting upon the tennis ball because of inertia that pushes it away simultaneously as it is being drawn in. And my point was to say this, that the same force that keeps you centered will determine how you live out your life. And that's true in the relationship of disciple and missioner as it's true in the relationship between worshiper and servant too. That if Christ doesn't center your life as a disciple, he'll never determine that you'll go and live out as a missioner. You see, the principle of identity is simple. That the one that centers your life will be the one that determines how you live your life. What you build your life on will determine how you live your life out. And walking in God's peace means that a Christ follower remembers this. Jesus is my peace as a disciple and we go to share him with others. Missioner. So what does it mean then for a Christ follower to walk in peace as disciple and missioner? Well, let's first of all look at this third aspect of the Christ follower's identity as disciple. Disciple is the third aspect of a Christ follower's identity because God's purpose in salvation, hear me, reverses sin's curse that it imposed upon our mind, our thinking, our mind. When sin entered the world, Genesis chapter 3, the serpent came to Adam and Eve, and what's the first thing that he did? He asked them a question. You see, what sin does when it approaches us and presents itself to us is that always, because Satan is the most uncreative person in the world, he basically only has one way that he comes to us, but he has perfected that way in so many different ways, right? He questions God's word, he puts doubt and speculation into our mind, and then he offers us a false idol or promise to substitute God's promise and God's pure worship. Every sin in your life was birthed out of this process right here. And what the scriptures teach us is it begins in the mind. If Satan could not have put that thought in their mind, he could not have stolen their heart, but he did. And he's been doing it with every person that's ever walked on the face of this earth with the exception of one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection, though, crushed sin, crushed the grave, and it renews our darkened thinking. And relationship with Jesus begins by transformation by the renewal of our mind, or through transformation by the renewal of our mind. You see, here's what Paul tells us. Paul takes that theology of Genesis 3, and he tells us in Romans chapter 1 that the problem we have with God is manifested in us through a 
broken thought pattern and process. Our mind is darkened. It's darkened thinking that keeps us separated from God and enslaved to sin. And so our identity as disciple forms this third aspect to learn and to follow God's will because in Christ we've been given the mind of Christ. That's what he tells us. We've been given this mind. And so let me in one sentence kind of define what I'm talking about when I talk about our identity as a disciple. A disciple engages the mind to focus on authenticity of new life in Jesus by renewal of the mind. A disciple engages the mind to focus on authenticity of new life in Jesus. In other words, what God intends for us in salvation, the transformed life that he intends for us, the authenticity of living that out, that's what a disciple focuses on to bring about through the renewal of the mind. You see, understanding how we know God becomes a priority on the mind because the mind is command central for life. Here's what Paul says, Romans 12, 2, you're very familiar with this verse. Do not be any longer conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern. You hear that last week we talked about that word discern just simply means to cut an answer. It means to clarify And you might be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. The mind of Christ, Christian, is in you because Christ lives in you. And that's what we're laboring for today. God's transformation of our identity as disciple is revealed by a renewing mind in sanctification. In other words, as our mind becomes more like the mind of Christ and more like the pattern, what Scripture demonstrates to us, we're seeing this transformation become reality for us. Now, let me explain this word disciple in Scripture too because the Scripture uses the word disciple, mathetes, in a number of different ways and it really covers a spectrum. On this end of the spectrum, it calls disciples those who knew Jesus most intimately in his earthly relationships. Like they later became the apostles and they wrote Holy Scripture for us. So the people who had the closest human relationships with Jesus are called disciples. And there's a spectrum, about six different ways that this word is used. But on the other end of the spectrum, you also have apostates who were called disciples. John chapter 6 verse 66 Some of you are going to clue into that about lunch. And those disciples walked away and followed him no more. That's apostasy. That's a disciple. It seems kind of crazy to use the same word in that kind of a spectrum, doesn't it? So let me ask you this. What does it mean for us to make a disciple, to be a disciple, What does that word mean for us? Well, the essence of that word combines two words that we understand into one meaning. And the words are this, learner and follower. Learner and follower. Now, I'm not saying 
Choose whichever one you like the best or you're better at. I'm saying it's both and. It's never either or. It's always both and. It's never multiple choice. If you take one without the other, which so often happens today, you have something different altogether. Okay? Learning without following makes somebody a fathead know-it-all. Right? And we all know how we feel about that person in our life. Right? But following without learning makes one a fan. And we know that games were never won by armchair quarterbacks. Neither without the other is of benefit to us. For a Christ follower, there is no stagnant learning and there is no ignorant following. That the expectation of following prioritizes learning and the dependency of learning enables the following. And so a disciple is only made when the combined qualities of learner and follower practice the rhythm of trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to, help me, trust and obey. Trust and obey. Always together. But Scripture doesn't hide the fact that the reality of our transformation is not always an easy process. For the new rhythm demands that a disciple grow in humility in order to obey. Last week I talked about in the life of a servant. Serving's not just about, or servant, is not just about what we do. It very much entails that. But it's also about what? How we do what we do. And as we grow in the humility that Christ demonstrated for us when he came as a servant, so we grow in our identity as servants of Christ. Well, as disciples, this is true as well. Humility rules our lives when we live in our true identity. You see, God's power works to bring about that authenticity of new life. It's not, uh, you know, authenticity defined in the world is what? Here I am, take it or leave it, right? That's not gospel transformed authenticity. Authenticity is here I is who I am in Christ, not because of me, because of him and because of what he's done. And I want you to see it. Because what it is, is not because of me, but only because of him. It's the whole John the Baptist, I must decrease, he must increase understanding. And so that's what God's power is doing in us. A disciple recognizes gospel transformation and authenticity by simply this way, that my life is changing. My life is changing. You see, some of you think you know me. But if you knew me a year ago, if you knew me five years ago, if you knew me 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I'm not the man today that I was then. And only because of God's grace, not because of any goodness or merit or ability in me. But I'm telling you, if you could catch a snapshot of me 30 years ago, and put it next to me today, you would see he's nothing like the person that he was without Jesus. And that's the life of a disciple. Self-denial 
and suffering become a regular practice in the midst of gospel transformation. Listen to Luke 9.23. I think that this is one of the best biblical definitions of what it means to have an understanding of our identity as disciples. Jesus says this, If anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, dare to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He goes on to say in Luke verse, or chapter 14, verse 27, that whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Self-denial and suffering become important in our path to Christ's likeness. Why? Because of this. Gospel transformation in authenticity, friends, is reality-altering. It is reality-altering. When we set our mind on Jesus by the Spirit's power, we walk in peace with God. This is not something that we have achieved. It's something that we've received because of Jesus Christ. And Romans 8, 5, and 6 tells us, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. And the flesh will include anything that originates and operates in this world. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. What a beautiful imagery. You see, walking in God's peace first means that a disciple grows in this authenticity of new life through gospel transformation that renews the mind to discern God's will and walk in His peace. To walk in His way. And so we're learning and following Jesus to walk in God's peace. How do we do that? By learning to apply the gospel to every area of life. Do not raise your hand to answer this question, okay? Not that I'm fearing someone would, but sometimes I ask questions that aren't rhetorical. I just don't want outward answers from you, okay? Don't call out your answer to this either. See, I'm helping you here. Do you ever wonder how the basic tenets of the gospel that Christ came as God, became a man, died on the cross, rose from the grave, and now sits in heaven, makes any difference in the day-to-day reality of your life. Have you ever wondered that? I mean, I have. What does it matter, God? What I need to do right now is I need to figure out how this bill is going to get paid or how this relationship is going to bring some kind of or come to some kind of reconciliation or how this wound is going to get healed in my life or how this bitterness is going to be taken away and something sweeter replace it. We've all asked those kinds of questions, have we not? And growing as a disciple is our understanding of how the gospel applies to our life to address every situation, how to apply the gospel to every area of life. I want to unpack this using some of Paul's more extensive consideration of our identity as disciple. In the book of Colossians, chapter 2 specifically, he uses this theme in the book of Colossians of lordship and Jesus as the head of the church. I mean, you, you read chapter 1, he does this great hymn of exalting Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. You know, that's a, that's a pretty high praise of someone. But then he goes on in chapter 2 to pray for them and to talk about how it is that the gospel applies to everything in their life. And what he does is he provides for us what I want to explain as four dimensions of the mind or four dimensions of our thinking to help you understand how to apply the gospel to your life. 
And that first dimension of thinking is thinking as knowledge. Now, this is knowledge in the way we use the word. When the word know or knowledge is used in Scripture, it's typically including all of these things, especially when it's talking about God's knowledge. But this first dimension of thinking just includes the basic factual information. And Paul sets that forth for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, when he says, I explain to you the gospel that Christ came and that he died according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he rose according to the... So he just lays forth in two verses a very simple set forth, basic set of facts of the gospel. And often in the scriptures, the law and the commands of God are also presented in this very way. Just basic factual information, very cut Uh, Very straightforward and cut and dry. And so that's the first dimension of thinking. The second dimension of thinking is what I would call the perspective of knowledge. And it's at this level of thinking where we gain comprehension of the meaning of words and of the meaning of what is being said. And we also at this level begin to recognize differing levels of information, right? Some of you use this very effectively as you give a, a compliment that seemed like a compliment but felt more like something other, a dig or something like that, right? Oh, yeah, that that looks great on you. Wait a minute. They said this. I know what that means, but it felt like that, right? I mean, so, so we understand this. And how is it that the Scriptures explain this? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says this, that when I came to you, I had to treat you as infants in Christ and feed you spiritual milk because you weren't ready for the food of the word. And so he's doing a comparison here, same message that he's referencing, but he said, I had to say it in one way because you had not fully comprehended the meaning and I wanted you to gain that, to grasp that, so that you could understand it's not just a set of facts, but there's something more to it. The psalmist wonders in amazement at God in chapter 139 and 17 when he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Have you ever read a passage of Scripture on one time at your life and God just speaks so clearly to you? A year later, you're reading the same passage of Scripture and God brings the same worship and the same amazement, but it has a whole new meaning to it. I mean, this is the vastness of God's knowledge to us, friends. You will never delve the depths of the meaning of the Word of God, no matter how long you read, meditate, study, or break it apart. God and His ways and His thoughts are higher and deeper than our thoughts. And that's what Paul is getting at in this dimension of our thinking. We see this in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus when Christ becomes, or Christ comes along the disciples who are talking about everything that's happened. Man, you know, three days ago, I mean, he was being whipped and beaten and life seemed to be gone. But, but then he, they, they went to the grave and he was gone three days later. And, and it tells us that 
Christ walked alongside them, but they didn't recognize him for who he was. Now, there's some insight right there for how we ought to approach the word of God to recognize we're not going to see or recognize everything about the word without someone helping us. And that someone is the spirit on whom we should set our mind. And so he began to ask questions. Hey, what are you guys talking about? And their response to him is, where have you been? Everybody's talking about this. And he asked him a few questions. And then the Bible tells us this in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What did he show them? That it wasn't just about ink on paper, but it was about the one to whom the scriptures pointed. You see, when Jesus confronted the Pharisees, he said, you search the scriptures, John chapter 5, because you think that in them you have life. Because you grow a basic set of information and factual information in your own thinking. But the point is, when it stands real right in front of you, you don't see it. That's what Jesus does. That's what the Spirit of God does when he illumines us and brings the word to life. When Jesus teaches the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, what does he do? He tells a story, but what's this story based on? Well, I believe it's based on the law from Deuteronomy 21. Here's what we learn in Deuteronomy 21, that the law tells us that if a son is rebellious and his mother and father cannot get control of him and he is becoming destructive to the family, that it is holy law for, for them to march him to the gates of the city where the elders sit and to hand him over and have nothing else more to do with him and publicly declare that we render him as dead to us deal with him and the elders can either banish him into the wilderness or they can take his life and that's wholly lawful you go wow i'm telling my kids that tonight i mean this afternoon they're getting it right what verse was that i'm gonna read it to them make sure they understand i want to unpack it right One verse later, it says this. That every man who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. See, here's what Jesus was doing. He was simultaneously teaching them the law and showing them how he would fulfill the law. For Galatians 3 tells us that cursed is every man who hangs on a tree, but that Jesus became our curse for us. And that in him, the law has new meaning and glory for us. And so when he's telling the story of the prodigal son, what happens? The son says, God, uh, he says, Daddy, I want my inheritance. He takes every penny that was his, and he says, forget all of you. I'm leaving. And he goes to a faraway place, and he has all this friends and all this fun until the money ends. And then the friends and the fun disappear, and he ends up in a pigsty, right? And in that pigsty, he thinks, maybe, maybe, that he'll treat me like one of his hired hands and I'll just work the rest of my life as the lowest of the hired hands among my father's hirelings. But the way Jesus tells the story is that when the prodigal son is coming home, where do we find the father? Pause. Don't answer that question yet. Lawfully, the father should be going about his business because he's rendered that son dead. Because that son embarrassed the honor of the family and the good name of our family, that son is no longer alive to me. That's what the law says. He's dead 
But when the sun returns, was it just a great idea of the sun? Oh no, friends. For the story of the prodigal son, Jesus tells us that ever since that son left, the father waited and watched for his return. He did not render him dead. He longed for him to come home because he loved him. And when the sun broke the plane of the horizon, the father's heart leapt for joy because the son was coming home. Listen, friends. You must receive this life-giving word from God for it changes the way we think about Him. And it changes the way we think about me. And it changes the way we think about all others. How powerful this second level of understanding. When knowledge takes on new perspective in Christ. The third thinking and dimension of is our thinking as a pattern of processing information processing information. So now what we take what has been comprehended in meaning and it now moves to a deeper level of understanding. You, you might think of this as philosophy. Don't think of it that way too long because man that gets you in such trouble you know. But, but this is the level where we regard how it is we think about what it is we think about. I know that's kind of confusing. Just hang on a minute. I'll try to explain it a little bit more. This is where our comprehension of meaning leads to understanding and discernment. You see that? We deal specifically with how we process information in order to make decisions. How are you thinking through things? How are you drawing conclusions? And I would also say this. When you see yourself holding an attitude, it's because you are processing information on this level of thinking. You're holding a regard for someone or something else you have an attitude towards that thing that person or that situation because you are thinking in a certain pattern about it we all think in patterns which describes how we think about things we think in patterns when it's based on learning knowledge teaches us to think in patterns you know two plus two equals oh well I don't even know how to describe it in common core math, but used to it equaled four. I, I mean, I, and I'm not a mathematician, but, but we, we do that based on learning and our knowledge. We also think in patterns based on training. I mean, first responders, they don't think, they respond. Why? Because they've been trained in this way. It doesn't mean that they're disengaged in their thinking. It means that they're so trained, they don't have to think. They immediately go and they do. And we also think in patterns because of past experiences which trains us in a certain way. Maybe it's emotions or maybe it's traumatic events that occur and they have trained us because of the pain or because of the joy or whatever the case may be, trained us to think in certain patterns. I would even argue that an addict thinks in a certain way because they've been trained by the rush and the fix that the drug or whatever it is they're addicted to gives them. And they think, and all they think about is, how am I going to get my next fix? Listen, we've seen this over and over and over again. Even a mother, 
Even a mother can neglect and deny her own child because of the influence of a drug upon her pattern of thinking. That happens every day in the news. And so the gospel comes to us. And what does Paul say to us in 1 Corinthians 14, 20? He says this, brothers, he exhorts us to maturity. He says, do not be children in your thinking. What what are children in their thinking? They're not thinking about how they're thinking. They're just thinking, I want some candy. I want a cookie. Mama said, no, I'm going to find a way to get that cookie. Right? And right there, rebellion, you know. Your beautiful child inhabited by a little S spirit, right? I mean, you know, it, it doesn't take long. I'm, where'd the cookies go? I have no idea. Right? And Paul says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Don't just linger on the basic facts, you know. Be mature. In other words, bring the gospel not only into that basic set of facts and not only into the comprehension of what it means, but think about why the gospel matters. Think about why it matters for your life. He goes on to instruct Christians excuse me, to think in the same manner as Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus. That word for mind there also holds as attitudes in some translations of the Scriptures. Why? Because you are processing your thinking at a level where you are now assigning it to make decisions discernment. That's why we can have the mind of Christ. That's why we can know God's will, his good will, his pleasing will, even his perfect will for our life, because he is renewing our mind to think in the same manner. And I'll say this, we see it in Romans 121, where scripture actually issues a warning against how it is that sin darkens our thinking pattern. And listen to this influence that we have in our actions and our activities and in our responses to life to how it affects our thinking. He says this, for although they knew God, they knew God. But they did not honor him as God. They did not give thanks to him as God. And they became futile in their thinking. Friends, every time you steal glory from God, you darken your mind against him. Every time. And that's why there's not one ounce of praise that I should harbor in my heart and not pass along to the only one that's really worthy of it. There's not one amount of of gratitude that I should receive without offering it all to him. Because all honor and glory be unto him and to him alone. Let, let Let me argue it from this point. When a policeman drives behind you, what do you know about that policeman? That he is an officer of the law. That he is employed for the purpose of protecting, of serving. And I know police are getting a bad rap in the news today. I'm not referring to any of that. I'm just simply saying, fundamentally, we believe that police are here for our good because the law serves for our good. But when his blue lights turn on in your rearview mirror, you're not thinking about all of that. What are you thinking about? Have mercy. And you go immediately to the speedometer, right? The Lord blessed me with the opportunity of this illustration yesterday. (laughs) And when it occurs, you don't think about what you know about them. You think about how you think about them at that moment. 
The psalmist invites God to search him in Psalm 139, verse 23, and to search the whole of his life and to perfectly know him. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Most of us want to pray, uh, pray this. God, search the areas where I'm really good at walking with you and obeying you and ignore the other areas. That's kind of how I'm dealing with it. I'd like for you to honor and do the same. That's not what the psalmist teaches us to pray. You see, this invitation is not simply to determine where all, whether all of our factual information is correct, but also, is my comprehension of what you're saying correct? And is my understanding, the way I'm thinking about it and using it correct? You see, friends, the question that we must ask is this. Does Jesus center our thinking Listen, friends, if you wear Christianity as a label and it's just something you do at certain times when you're around certain people or in certain places, I can tell you this, Jesus isn't centering your thinking, he's accessorizing it. And you're using him to rationalize your own sin and justify yourself before God and that's the reason the condemnation doesn't go away even if you claim it in his name. He must center you and your thinking does Jesus center your thinking? What determines your pattern of thinking? Is it biblical teaching or is it personal rationale and experience? Do you say, God, I know what your word says, but I don't want to think this way about this because this happened in my life or this person said this or whatever the case may be. And you begin to even use other voices to justify yourself by arguing with God because you think it's less wrong if you don't argue with God, but you use somebody else to argue with God for you. And so you justify yourself in that way. Do my conclusions align with God's word to bring him glory? God, I know your word says this, but I don't think I like that. And so I'm going to take a different path. You see, at that moment, you're operating in the level of thinking where your perspective and your pattern is what's leading you away from God. You know that Jesus came and you died, but you're saying no to him as you rationalize and justify your thinking in other ways. And then you wonder, why isn't Jesus being all that he claims he is? You see, often in our pattern of thinking, what we'll do is we'll limit the intake of information. At that moment, when I passed that policeman, he did not turn his lights on immediately, but I knew I was guilty, right? Do you know why we know we're guilty in sin? Because we are, right? I mean, that's the only reason. And I went, oh, Lord, right now, Lord, blind that man not to see that speed. I mean, just take it away from him. Cause an electrical malfunction to happen. Cut the wires. I don't care. Do not let this happen to me. It happened. He pulled out. And I went, okay, maybe he's going to get the car in front of me or behind me. But all that I could think of was my speed in the rear view. I mean, I was doing this because what happens is when we begin to think in these patterns of thinking, we limit the intake of information and we polarize that we might reach a conclusion and quickly bring it to a, to a conclusion. Just to stop it. I mean, sometimes our training does that, our urgency does that, our, our convenience or our comfort does that. But man, when, when life is hurting, we kind of have a way of just saying, man, I don't want to listen to anybody that's going to tell me the truth. I'm going to find somebody that's going to tell me what I want to hear, right? And that's why it's so important that we be trusting people who will be in love speaking truth to us 
Because when we have things happen to us like this, we're not going to just be taking in all the information. We're done with information gathering. We're done with comprehension of meaning. I don't give a rip what it means. I care right now about what it's doing to me and how it's making me feel. And I am doing nothing but polarizing my thoughts on how to get out from under this pain. How to heal this wound. How to get over this bitterness and put it on somebody else. And if we haven't let the gospel already affect our pattern of thinking, we're not going to run to Jesus when the pain is the highest and the hurt is most intense. Christ followers as disciples learn to seek God in his word and let the Holy Spirit counsel and to guide our mind into how we think. And one of the ways we do that is just simply by not shutting down, but by opening up. It's one of the hardest things you'll ever have to learn to do when the pain is most severe. But Peter instructs this way, 1 Peter 4.1. He helps us with understanding and applying the gospel at this level of our thinking when he says this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. You see, Christians should be thinking different because Christ suffered in the flesh. Why would that matter? Do not talk to me about Jesus dying on the cross right now. I'm about to get a ticket and have to go home and tell my wife. And then I'm going to get grounded. Peter says what? Remember what I told you? That the scripture's honest with us. And what does it say? Self-denial and suffering is a real part of our identity in Jesus. And a real part of the reality of our life. And if we haven't armed ourselves with this way of thinking, we're not about to run to it right now. The fourth level, and i got to hurry. Thinking as wisdom. It's where all other aspects combine for right application unto obedience. You see, as the disciple continually walks in gospel truth to grow in every area of the mind, we begin to walk in the wisdom of God. Paul exhorts Christians to walk in wisdom. In Ephesians 5.15, he says, Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Friends, look at this. Look at the way you live your life. Does it align with what God has said? That's the simple assessment that he is exhorting us to take. And, and you say, well, as far as I know, level one, as far as I know, factual information, it is. As far as I know in the meaning of that information, it is. As far as I know in the pattern of my thinking, it is. But most likely, friends, what's going to happen is the Spirit's going to bring conviction, either in the way you're thinking about it, what you understand it to mean, or even what you know. A new knowledge bring a new meaning will bring a new pattern of thinking. And the Spirit is renewing your mind to live in the transformation that Christ has already put upon you. Proverbs says this, that walking in wisdom is not an individual project, but the fruit of making disciples. Proverbs 13, 20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. Assess your life with this. Who's surrounding you? Who's walking with you? Who are you walking with? 
Friends, Christ is the holder of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And it's critical for Christians to think about how we think. You know, studies now show that gaming, that pornography, and even social media not only dumbs us down in our mind so that we don't think, but it makes us ignorant from not thinking, and it actually reverses and shifts patterns of our thinking. You think the gospel doesn't want to address the effects of sin's curse upon us in these ways? It absolutely does. To every depth, there is no depth of thinking that is lower and deeper and richer and more powerful than God's thoughts. And we have them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you walking in peace by a renewed mind in Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Spirit of God, I ask that in these next few moments you would help and encourage us because there's not a person in the room who is beyond us. So I just pray right now for your help in discernment, in illumination, in conviction, and in guidance. Friends, are you walking in God's peace as a learner and as a follower of Jesus Christ? Trusting Him to bring about the transformation that only He can bring. Help us, Lord Jesus, to turn our eyes and to set our minds upon You in all ways. In Jesus' name, amen.